Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am very excited to bring the conversation I had with Daniel Tutt. Daniel is a philosopher and writer. He's trained in philosophy and psychoanalytic practice. He taught philosophy at George Washington University and Marymount University, just outside Washington, D.C. And his interest areas in writing are on Marxist thought, Nietzsche's philosophy, and social power of the intellectual. He is the author of the latest and fantastic book, How to Read Like a Parasite, Why the Left Got High on Nietzsche, and it's just brilliant. I absolutely enjoyed reading this and enjoyed talking with him about it for over two and a half hours. Um, this conversation goes fast, um, and so it, I wanted to do another two and a half, three hours with him, And so, uh, but I don't, I don't think our... Or we had enough energy and, and our bladders were probably too full. So I, we, we stopped it where we did and it was, it was all fantastic. I, I, I really enjoyed this conversation a lot. Uh, we start by talking about uh, Nietzsche and Nietzscheism and what that is. We talk about prolepsis and prophetic, esoteric and exoteric readings of Nietzsche. The Janus face of Nietzschean philosophy. Building culture, casting class, current leftist readings of Nietzsche. Uh, of course, the, the mighty Lacerdo's uh, work on the four stages of Nietzsche. We talk about Nietzsche and Marx on religion, what it means to read Nietzsche as a parasite, and many more topics. Again, this conversation was uh, such a blast for me. Nietzsche is one of my favorite philosophers, if not my favorite. And, um, you know, I think really seeing the centrality of Nietzsche as a political philosopher is important. Daniel gets that. A lot of other people get that. And we need, we need these kinds of uh, conversations about Nietzsche to see his work accurately. And um, I, I was so honored and privileged to, to talk with Daniel for as long as I did. And I uh, really, really enjoyed this conversation and getting all his wisdom. Uh, as always, you can find this conversation and all the conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com. Also on YouTube. Subscribe, follow, like, share with your friends, uh, contribute. Um, you know, I, I, I really appreciate people that support and contribute to the podcast. Um, that helps me keep going, helps me make each episode better and better. Um, and so I, I really do appreciate that. And uh, now I bring you Daniel Tut. I am here with uh, Daniel Tut. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm a uh, Greatly looking forward to our conversation. Thanks for having me, Xavier. This is exciting. Yeah, I uh, rarely get to speak to people so steeped in in Nietzsche wow. like yourself. Wow. So wow. I'm looking forward, and thank you for reading my book. <laughs> of course, yeah. Well, your book was fantastic, and um, I don't I don't know how steeped I am. I I, I like him. I read him, uh, but uh, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Listeners can decide how much I <laughs> I know or I'm pretending to know. But uh, but yeah, I, I I've read a lot of him, and I I enjoy him. So. Uh, it's always nice to see people, you know, thinking about him as well and writing on him honestly. So that's great. You have a new book out on him, which is called How to Read Like a Parasite, How the Left Got High on Nietzsche. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a great title. It's a great cover. And uh, the stuff in there is, is fantastic. And, and really, I mean, we'll get all into it, but it's really nice to see that you put kind of Nietzsche in context a lot and really looking at him and through his political lens, which a lot of people don't. Um, uh, I guess maybe some people do now or they're trying to, but uh, really kind of put him in context. I mean, that's not all that's in there. There's a bunch of other stuff too. So it would be nice to kind of really uh, see all of the, the different ways of, of, of kind of how to re read him and try to read him accurately and, and look at it politically, you know, and all these good things. So before we, we get to all of that, 
Uh, just tell listeners uh, who you are professionally, academically, uh, all the all the uh, specifics that you want and uh, what you're what you're currently doing. Okay, great. Thanks again for having me. Um, I I am a teacher of philosophy. I'm also a researcher with a focus in psychoanalytic studies. So I also have a, a strong interest in Freud, which I think you do as well. Yeah, you're a man after my own heart. It's great. <laughs> yeah, we have a lot of shared research interests. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And yes, uh, very much interested in um, political thought, critical theory. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I read pretty widely. I I I will I will say I'm interested in. Mm, Looking at the left, the meaning of the left is a very important project for me. Mm-hmm. I'm a person on the left. I have, um, you know, strong views, which probably will appear in our conversation uh, uh, regarding the direction I think the left should take in different ways. So I am an engaged, an engaged philosopher. Um, I teach uh, at different places. I don't have like a full-time gig. I'm a senior research fellow at the Global Center for Advanced Studies. I have a YouTube channel. I have a podcast. Um, I do a lot of stuff online. I have a Patreon where I have, you know, people reaching out to me. So I'm, I've kind of taken my philosophical vocation and made it both public. Mm. And I'm always doing my research out loud and mm. in public. Mm. Right. And um, that's something that I think has always just been a, a drive of mine. I've never been necessarily. Um, compelled by the university track in a post 2008 context in Mm. part because they just don't Mm -hmm. pay well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And number one, number two, you know, I wanted to have a family. It's actually quite difficult to have a family if you're a full-time academic Yes. Um, (laughs) Yes. in terms of things like that. So I also do filmmaking work Mm, um, and I also do research in religion. Mm. So uh, those are my main interests sort of, but, but, I think for today's conversation, you know, I'm really a, a philosopher of socialism, of the left, of the meaning of the left, of of Marxist thought, you know. And I think part of part of what my um, what what really drove my interest in Nietzsche was the sense that in the field of politics and social life, um, oftentimes, I don't know if you agree with this, we often look for and seek out a philosophical perspective to be our compass, to be our kind of lighthouse. Mm-hmm. And Nietzsche has been a lighthouse, I think, for, for, for a long time. And of course, so has Marx. And of course, there's always been that interest in, well, can we synthesize these two figures or not? And that's a big question. Um, so I have a kind of autobiographical narrative about my entry into philosophy, my entry into the left, and my entry into thinking about that fusion of Marx and Nietzsche, which, as you probably remember from the book, is covered in the first chapter, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's a little bit about me. Um, hopefully that's a decent, a decent overview. Yeah, 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 absolutely. No, that's great. It's interesting. We do have a lot of overlapping themes. I mean, uh, listeners of the podcast will know that, you know, I was... Uh, a fundamentalist Christian for the you know, first 22, 23 years of my life. And I, you know, I went from theist to atheist in like three years. And, uh, 
I'm still due to tell that story at some point on here. I, I haven't done it yet, but I, I will at some point. Um, yeah, and I went to a Bible college and a seminary, and I took Greek and Hebrew and the whole thing, and you know, and all all of the you know uh, exegesis that's required, and really deep in it. So your your work with religion is interesting because you know I, I also uh, historically uh, for me I, I was interested in religion for a long time. Um, and yeah, I, you know, my day job, you know, as a clinician and someone that's done, you know, therapy with patients for over 15 years, um, you know, I'm pretty rooted in psychoanalysis and psychodynamic work and with Freud, um, probably a little bit more contemporary, but I have a big, big, big admiration for Freud. Uh, I think he's brilliant and I think he gets a lot of bullshit unnecessarily from people that just don't really read the corpus of his stuff. And I think if you do, you, you don't really see Freud as just someone that talks about sex and, you know, Coke. So, you know, I, I, I have a big appreciation for the, the analyst as well. And then, yeah, and then philosophy. I, it's more of an informal thing for me. I wasn't formally trained, but, um, you know, I, I find philosophers, even people that do literature, you know, they, they're able to write and talk about psychology, I think, better than most psychologists, unfortunately. So... Uh, there's still a lot of things to draw from people in different uh, disciplines and how we understand humans. So this political angle is is really interesting, right? Because, you know, I, I remember, you know, I, your, your, your story in the book, so, I, you know, people should go and buy the book. It's great. Uh, and you can kind of get the full download of, of your story. But is this, it was very similar to mine. It was just like, yeah, like, what is, who is this guy? And then just like, you know, just kind of really just getting hit over the head with all these ideas that are just kind of like, that can't be it. And it's like, wow, you keep reading. You're like, oh, wow, this is really profound. And, and keep coming back to it. I'm saying like, wow, like what is it about this guy's writing? That's really profound, really deep. Um, it really just kind of feels like a bottomless well, like you can just keep pulling from it and just getting stuff. And that's cool. It's nice to fanboy a little bit. And then it becomes, okay, well then let's see him in like his context and let's see like, wow, he's a really political writer. Oh, wow. He was really thinking about a lot of things. And, and so, you know, then obviously you have people that have, mm, I think the right, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll get into this, but you know, it's kind of co-opted him. There was a whole Nazism phase that people tried to use his philosophy for, which probably isn't accurate. Um, and, you know, and then there's this, there's this pool of, you know, how do, how do people politically use them. So I, I totally agree with you. Um, when people have certain political ideas or any ideas, there's usually a framework, I would say. There's, whether they know it or not, there's a worldview, there's a framework, there's something philosophical that's animating what's driving them, what's, what they're going for. Um, and I think, I think where we can put the conversation is, how can we best understand Nietzsche as accurately as possible? And then you can prescribe, I guess, various interpretations, but I think it's trying to understand, well, what was he really saying to begin with? And what was he, what was he up to? What was his project? And outside of that, if people can have a good uh, handle on that, which is hard to do, <laughs> he's a complicated guy. Um, but, you know, hopefully you can have some accuracy so that way it isn't getting co-opted in a negative way. So it'd be interesting right. to see uh, what, you know, where, where, where people can kind of land on that. Um, yeah. Okay. So let, let's, let's start with um, just as kind of a, just to drop us in here, I guess you make this distinction between Nietzsche and who he is as a philosopher and things like that. And then Nietzscheism, right. Which is, which is, uh, which is interesting. So tell us yeah. about 
the two things, I guess, and, and why they're different and how it's different from reading Nietzsche himself. So tell us about Nietzscheism and, and, and the differences. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing because on, on the one hand, Mike, one of the claims that a lot of readers of Nietzsche, I'm not the only one that has made this claim. I'm thinking here of Malcolm Bowl and Jeffrey Waite, two contemporary yeah. mm-hmm. scholars of Nietzsche. Many others, um, although some do not make this claim, uh, which is that Nietzsche develops a community, mm. right? He, his philosophy can be understood as a kind of community building exercise. I like to think about that community building exercise in relationship to a kind of um, inverted Paulinian community in the sense that um, for Nietzsche himself, he always wished to actually um, deny this notion of a community building project, while at the same time putting out numerous suggestions that this is exactly what's going on. The best example of which, of course, is the, the development of the dramatic personae of Zarathustra, mm-hmm. um, as well as other dramatic personae that are um, introduced throughout his oeuvre. So there is a, a, a sense that Nietzsche is a proleptic writer. Right? So he, he's, a, he's a writer who is seeking to um, write in a mode of address which has a proleptic and a prophetic. Uh, style. And anytime one uses prolepsis as a device, which is a device for um, laying down a scenario of a future state Mm. of becoming a future state of existence and inviting the reader to partake in that, Mm. right? Um, It's not, it's not um, an exaggeration to say that Nietzsche used secular prophecy. I mean, in Leo Strauss's lectures on Nietzsche's Zarathustra, he says that precise thing. And of course, we know that Elizabeth Forster Nietzsche, um, at the time at which Nietzsche in his later declining years became basically catatonic, Mm -hmm. this notion of Nietzsche the Superman and Nietzsche the prophet was definitely embellished. We know from Dmitry Safranov's new uh, dissertation, which was recently published, Mm. That Nietzsche himself was very interested in bankrolling the Nietzschean project, right? So, um, but but embedded within the text is both an esoteric and an exoteric strategy to sort of conceal that notion that what is at, what he's actually seeking is a community project. Now, one of the arguments, of course, that I think I make and that other Marxist readers of Nietzsche have made, such as Losurdo, Domenico Losurdo, mm-hmm. and Georg Lukács, and others, is the idea that where Nietzsche developed the concept of being a community-building philosopher was a reaction to the burgeoning grassroots movements of egalitarian movements of his time in a post-1848, post-Paris Commune context Mm -hmm. across Europe. Mm -hmm. And this is actually why an early Nietzsche would experiment with naming his community the free spirits, Mm -hmm. which was a choice in distinction to the free thinkers. The free thinkers were a particular egalitarian community formation. Uh, The free spirits were uh, the opposite of that. They were to be more refined. They were to be more subtracted. 
from the herd, from the masses, from massification. Mm -hmm. So um, I think this is true. I mean, of course, we can see that this, this strategy is apparent when we look at the way that Nietzsche would offer lectures, say, for example, his early lectures um, in, in the idea of education mm. coincide with the birth of tragedy, right? One of his first systematic works. Mm -hmm. The birth of tragedy can definitely be understood as a kind of esoteric mm -hmm. text insofar as the agenda, the explicit modern uh, political agenda is beneath the surface, mm. right? It's beneath the surface. It's a, it's, it's kind of a question mark whether he's referring to implicitly the communards that took over Paris mm. when he's drawing the notion of um, the Saturnalia of barbarism that was open, right? So that's, that's meant to be uh, uh, slightly left open, left open for interpretation. But whereas in other, and this is why Heidegger, Heidegger did say once that the secret to Nietzsche is in his Nocles and in his epistolary, mm. right? Mm which was an admission that there is an esoteric and an exoteric dimension of Nietzsche. So therefore, you could say paradoxically that you only grasp the truth of the esoteric by digging into the epistolary, which means that Nietzsche, because of his mysterious quality and his mysterious community-building agenda, can really only be understood by digging into the depths of his letters mm. By digging into the depths of his everyday life. I mean, this is why uh, Georges Bataille, the great French Nietzschean, said, one does not understand Nietzsche unless they have become Nietzsche. Mm. Right? Mm. Jeff Waite says the same thing in Nietzsche's corpse. Mm -hmm. This is part of the reason, Xavier, why he is so alluring to us, because of the mystery right? mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the prophecy and this notion of an invitation to something. What are we being, what are we being invited into? Mm -hmm. We don't know exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We don't know exactly. We want to figure it out. Part of the sad news for a true Nietzschean would be that if I were to say to you, let's say you're a true Nietzschean, let's say you have drinking the Kool-Aid and you're a part of the community. <laughs> uh, I were to say to you, well, look, I'm revealing all of this reactionary political proto-fascist <laughs> agenda. And this, of course... <clears throat> Since I know offline, you just finished reading The Aristocratic Rebel by mm -hmm. Domenico mm -hmm. Lucerta. Yeah, I have it here. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big boy. It is a, yeah, a big boy. It's big. That's kind of the effect of that text, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I think one of the objectives of my book is, like somebody wrote a blurb from my book, Matthew McManus, where he said, look, yeah. this is the first book to seriously think about Nietzsche in a deeper way after Lacerdo's intervention. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the thing that's needed right now, because there is a sense in which what is the, what is Nietzsche when all of it is revealed, when it's all out on the table. Mm -hmm. And I think that Lacerdo's effort um, represents, I, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but, uh, but, but, but yes, to go back to your core question, I think that, um, it, this is this is what I would say is that he is um, he's this alluring figure because he like Derrida is a I think a very interesting reader of Nietzsche I think he's a kind of 
inadequate reader of Nietzsche. We can talk about that. Yeah, but, I, I would agree. Yeah. But he is somebody who... It took him serious. Took him serious. Well, it took him serious, but um, uh, played at certain levels, mm. right? Kind mm. of like, like he, he knew certain scales mm. in music mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. Nietzschean orchestra. And he, he, could, he could extract them mm. and, and, and play those notes. But all of the stuff that he was doing never fully wanted to answer some of the truths of the esoteric dimension. Mm-hmm. If you leave those at bay, if you leave those indeterminate, as mm. Derrida does, mm. and you leave it as a question of Nietzsche's indecipherability and of his open stylistics, mm. then in that case, um, you have a playful philosopher of indeterminacy. You, you see the deconstructive openness. And I mean, I'm thinking here of Spurs. Derrida's great work on Nietzsche, where he spends you know, dozens of pages reflecting on a little aphorism that Nietzsche wrote, which was simply, I have forgotten my umbrella. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember this phrase. No, I, I don't remember the phrase, but it's on Derrida spending, you know, pages and pages on it doesn't, doesn't surprise me. <laughs> it's a fascinating concept in a, in a sense, because, you know, on the one hand, Derrida intimates that it is a reflection on Nietzsche and nature, mm-hmm. on naturalism. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean to go into the world uncovered mm-hmm. as a free spirit? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on the other hand, um, it is an admission of a possible defeat, which is my political agenda has no protection. Mm-hmm. The forces of massification of one some sense you see yeah so there's all of these different ways to read just one little note yeah and it's uh, brilliant actually and i'm i'm not you see this is actually where some readers will sort of want to shut all that down and say oh well he's an aristocratic madman so we're not really going to learn from him as you know from my book i really say i really do say the opposite Mm -hmm. um there's limits i mean i'm not I'm not prepared to put Nietzsche at the driver's seat of the left. That to me is something that I want to avoid, but I certainly want to parasitically, what I call parasitically read from him mm-hmm. and learn from him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 No, well, that, that's good. I, I think that's, that's a nice way you, you want him in maybe in the, in the passenger seat or maybe in the back seat or something, but definitely not in the driver's seat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe in like the uh, the car, the, the, car, the car behind, yeah, the car following right, you too, right? Right. Us, yeah. <laughs> right, fair enough. <laughs> um, I want to I want to ask you about something that you said because uh, I think it's interesting and and maybe hard to know, but maybe I wonder what the text tells us. You know, these various various texts is you know you're talking about this way in which he has this. This is kind of twofold, right? You have this. Um, uh, prolipsis and the prophetic, and then you have the esoteric and the exoteric, which is absolutely uh, 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 true. That to me seems very mm, that's that that seems very intentional for what he's trying to do. That's not an accident. Um, mm. Of course, we don't really know, of course, you know, inside of his head, but based on the the way, all of the writings we have of him, why do you think that 
he felt that was the way to express his views on culture, on a free philosophy, on morals, on religion. Why did he, why do you think that was the way knowing things about him, knowing how he was trained, knowing various experiences, et cetera. Why do you think that was the way in which he chose to, to write about things that, that continues to have this uh, mystique and allure you know, as well? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Um, I, uh, uh, of, I mean, I think that part of what my book tries to slightly avoid is psychobiography because I feel that that's a valuable endeavor. And I also feel that a psychobiography would be probably needed with Nietzsche. I mean, we have a few, um, but we actually um, don't really have a definitive one. Like I'm thinking here of the psychoanalyst, Jean Laplanche in his incredible psychobiography of Holderlin Mm. Holderlin in the question of the father where he really shows that um, the genius of Holderlin and how he was capable of writing the Hyperion, this poetic novel, Mm -hmm. was because he had a psychotic breakdown and had to move in with his mother. Mm. So what I'm trying to say is that I don't quite have a psychobiographical reason as to Nietzsche's genius at that level Mm -hmm. in terms of his style. Mm -hmm. But let me answer it politically and philosophically. I think there's an answer philosophically by sticking to Nietzsche's concepts Mm -hmm. as to the proleptic style, Mm -hmm. which is that if the will to power, this concept, submits to the notion that any utterance um, can never give a proper evaluation of the thereness of being, Mm -hmm. that if being is in a constant state of flux, right, Mm -hmm. that that indeterminacy actually means that um, language itself is always in a prolepsis with itself. Mm. In other words, every every utterance is a precipitative statement Mm. bound up with power relations that are unevaluatable by the perspective of the person uttering them. Mm. This is is the argument of the Slovenian philosopher Alenka Zupanchik in her book, Philosophy of the Two which I reference in my book. Mm-hmm. So I, I do try to say that the proleptic style is tied back to the will to power as well as to the eternal return. Mm-hmm. Because if that um, flux of indeterminacy, well, Nietzsche will say we need to affirm something beyond that, beyond that unchangeable ontological horizon, mm. that principle of Amor Fati, that principle of the eternal return beyond that. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you could look at it from this standpoint. From a spiritual, political community standpoint, I think clearly Nietzsche is trying to invent a way to confront what he would call slave morality Mm -hmm. and to, um, at times, his strategy here, he perceives in a very manic depressive way as defeated, his project as being defeated. At other times it is possibly triumphant. There's a whole series, according to some readers of Nietzsche, there's a whole series of stages of Nietzsche's political community project, right? But nonetheless, there is that 
proleptic community building project, not in all texts. I mean, I think that I think that this this strategy will appear more in some texts and less in others. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it will appear less in Nietzsche's middle period, for example, and more in his late period, for example. Um, clearly, Zarathustra stands out right. as something very unique on a different different plane. So I would put it this way. I think that I can't answer that psychobiographically, but I think we could answer it conceptually mm. as well as spiritually, politically. Mm. No, no, no. That, I, think that, I think that works. I mean, yeah, I would... I think anything else kind of starts to get very speculative, um, although could be an interesting endeavor. So, yeah, I mean, you could, you could, you could, I mean, you, you could also ask, you know, Nietzsche's um, if teachers and interlocutors and identify. I mean, there is this concept that Jung developed, mm-hmm. by the way, in his lectures on Nietzsche, which may be helpful mm-hmm. to answer your question, mm-hmm. which is this idea of a kind of megalomaniacal um, imitation. Um, I forget the exact concept that Jung uses to, to, to refer to it, mm. but it is a very important one, which is the idea that you read something and in a moment of a, of a kind of restless uh, epiphany that you're having as you're writing, you dredge up what you've read and you regurgitate it verbatim Mm. and Jung gave this Jung said this is what Nietzsche did Mm. uh, continuously right and so it was it was part of his prophetic Mm. uh, unconscious and it it, it was something that spoke through him Mm. it's a kind of spiritual intense spiritual plagiarism in a sense Mm. Um, that may be helpful yeah, um, it's interesting. You know, that, that might be a part of it. Yeah, it's interesting in terms of like process, right? I think that's a, you know, I mean, everyone has a different process of how they get to ideas or how they write them out. So that that's an interesting uh, offering. I, I again, who's to know? But I think that there's something to that, though. I think for sure. I think I think the other I think the other thing is that you we, another thing we have to answer right is given that Nietzsche has an agenda of development of what he calls great politics. Yeah. And given that Nietzsche has a, an explicit political agenda, one has to ask, on what basis was he so driven in this singular way, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That would not necessarily be reducible simply to um, hatred, or rather that would be idiosyncratic, like such as, oh, well, he just happened to hate the plebs or the plebeians or something like this. Mm-hmm. No. I think here what we would have to show, and I think what many have shown, many many researchers, uh, scholars on Nietzsche have shown, is the fact that uh, Nietzsche's politics, I think, are formed in, in a way which possess a particular radicalization in the sphere of culture. Mm. And as a classicist, as a philologist, as a... Um, as, as a thinker who is concerned with what Lucerto calls establishing the metaphysics of genius, Nietzsche really did see egalitarian movements hmm. in his time as constituting a, a serious threat, hmm. not just to uh, the government or to the stability of the social order. No, 
but the point that Nietzsche makes is to the very, the very, the very sick, the very physiology hmm. of man as such, hmm. right? Because keep in mind, slave morality is a physiological condition that has both this social and individual component. Hmm. So I really think that um, Nietzsche's, because there's a whole other way that a lot of more liberal leaning Nietzscheans will read what motivated Nietzsche, which is of course his sickness, mm-hmm. right? Um, in the, in the new uh, biography, for example, I am dynamite. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is a big focus. Mm-hmm. And I think what's interesting about that is the sense in which sickness, um, decadence, um, is something which has also a social function, mm-hmm. which you don't see a lot of those folks bring out. Anyways, I'm, I'm going on a little thread there, but, mm-hmm. uh, hopefully that, 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 but I think your question is is a sound one, which is the the mystery of Nietzsche remains. We must be humble to know that the mystery will remain. We can't just yeah. sort of, um, you know, uh, look at it as a as a clean cut case. Mm-hmm. Here's his motivations. No, yeah. there's a lot of indeterminacy here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no. I, I think that's right, and I think that sometimes for some people that can be frustrating or unresolved. I mean, I find it wonderful. I think it's great because it, it gives it a, mm, uh, not a timeless feel, but it gives it a kind of, uh, it gives it always a kind of relevance, I guess you could say, uh, which I think is, is important, I think, for, for, for a lot of, a lot of uh, people to, to, to kind of grasp. So I want to, you've mentioned a bunch of times, so community building, culture, I want to get all into it. Before we do, and you touched on I guess, I guess a little bit, but maybe let's just you know fully open it up because it's a big um, uh, theme in the book. Is this? Tell us about the Janus-faced philosophy of, of mm. Nietzsche. Let, let's mm. tell tell us about that. That's a huge theme in your book. Uh, explain to listeners what is the Janus face and and why you see this in Nietzsche's philosophy. Right. Well, I mean, I think on the one hand, Nietzsche is a thinker of the two. Um, in, 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 in metaphysical terms, I think that Nietzsche, um, even at some point says, I come to split the world in two. Mm-hmm. Nietzsche has a notion that there are social and political preconditions for the development of great politics, mm-hmm. which are the instantiation and the development of what he calls an ascending and a declining line of humanity. Mm-hmm. Those need to be located, diagnosed. This you could think of as the kind of political psychological art of the philosopher. Mm. If Socrates is literally sick, right, as a as a as a uh, offshoot or an effect of his will to life, of his incapacity to harness a will to power, of the way that uh, his use of the rationalist tradition actually creates a spiritual sickness, right. Mm. Um, well, that direction that philosophy could take has a certain through line that has a through line to the modern period. And there are avatars today amongst us Mm -hmm. that could contaminate culture in this way. And so I perceive the two-ness of Nietzsche to be an embedded strategy at the core of the genealogical method itself um, as developed in genealogy of morals and elsewhere. Mm. 
So that's one way that I see it. Okay. And the other way that I see the, this notion of a Janus face is in the balancing act of the exo and the esoteric dimensions of Nietzsche. Okay. And in those, what we find is a certain oscillation between different registers of voice and advice and induction into certain perspectives, certain suggestions that he gives to his readers. Here, especially, I'm talking about the more esoteric epistolary work of Nietzsche, the letters, the Nautilus, etc., the unpublished material, the fragments, mm-hmm. where what we really see, I think, in many cases, is the development of certain projects that are meant to um, prepare the reader for what it would take to enact the type of social vision, political vision that he is interested in. And it's at that point where a lot of Anglo-American Nietzscheans, a lot of academic Nietzscheans, um, actually some of them actually say a funny thing, Xavier, they say actually we don't need to actually pay attention to any of Nietzsche's unpublished material. We, can o- we, we only need to focus on what's published. But my, my point would be actually that we miss the fullness and the richness of the project. Mm-hmm. Whether, whether we think that Nietzsche's project failed or succeeded mm-hmm. is kind of neither here nor there. Well, and also because we, we do that with so many other thinkers as well. So it's, it's not like it's unique to Nietzsche, right? We look at other thinkers in their uh, miscellaneous writings all the time. We do this with, you know, with, with Heidegger. We do this with Derrida. We do this, we do this with, with plenty of people. Yeah, so exactly. That's right. And I think that as a strategy, Nietzsche has this Janus face mm. in the ESO and the exoteric, which appears in texts. Lectures are going to have more an exoteric than um, more cryptic, poetic, aphoristic writing. The aphorism, as Deleuze and Derrida say, Mm -hmm. in many cases is meant to be indeterminate and fundamentally open. And that's a beautiful thing about reading the aphorisms. Mm -hmm. So it implicitly has an esoteric dimension, which of course is not always political. But the esoteric dimension is the other face. And what we find in that other face is a fairly brutal uh, political agenda, which has to be historically contextualized, I argue. In what sense? Well, in the sense that Nietzsche's writing at a moment where Western civilization is undergoing some pretty profound changes. We have universal male suffrage. We have the ending of chattel slavery. We have... um, the rise of communist movements. We have the rise of imperialism. We are only 15 years away from the First World War, which is you know, caused from these imperial conflicts. Um, we have massive colonial expansion, right? Um, it just so happens that all of those things kind of still exist in our world. Um, <laughs> but you see Nietzsche's writing at this moment. Mm-hmm. You see my point? Yeah. He's writing at this moment and He's prophesying a world uh, to come after great conflagration and great conflict, which he sees as inevitable, is going to happen. That's actually why when Nietzsche is resurrected and dusted off after the Second World War, it makes sense because he's already written so much of his prolepsis 
as almost like telegraphed to something beyond the wars, mm, mm, literally. Yeah. It's not, it's not, it's not enough to just say, oh, Nietzsche predicted the wars. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. Not only did he predict the wars, he said his philosophy wouldn't start until after them. Mm. And that actually is true. Yeah. Okay. When Bertrand Russell assesses the second world war from a philosophical standpoint, you know what he called it? He called it Nietzsche's war, mm. right? When Walter Kaufman was at Harvard University following the Second World War, the great translator mm-hmm. of Nietzsche, he got in big debates with other German scholars there. Mm. And I'm not a German specialist myself, but I have read about this. Mm. And you know what their debate was? Their debate was, look, we just fought fascism. And part of that period of time, um, you know, Nietzsche was seen as the philosopher of the fascists. Right. And you, Kaufman, now want to uh, dust him off and, you know, introduce us in this post-fascist so-called world. Mm-hmm. I'm not having it. But Kaufman won that debate, obviously. Mm-hmm. And um, he resurrected a different type of Nietzsche, mm-hmm. right? Um, as you remember in my book, actually, I show how there were several Hollywood movies that were based on Nietzschean characters that were fascist, mm-hmm. right? Now, of course, I'm not going to say, I mean, I know a lot of contemporary scholars get sensitive, say, oh, don't call him a fascist and stuff. I think that's fine. I'm not, I'm not calling him a fascist. What I am saying, though, is um, there's a history there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a serious history there, and it's worth reading about. Mm. Okay. Um, anyways, I'm jumping ahead. Um, but the Janus faced is this, that's within Nietzsche. Now, I make a second argument, which is that the cultural effect of Nietzscheanism, okay, which uh, we can define like this. When Walter Isaacson wrote his biography of Steve Jobs, he said, Steve Jobs never read a word of Nietzsche, but he knew that he was an Ubermensch. Mm. That's Nietzscheanism. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Nietzscheanism is a kind of general sense that relations of rank order, keeping in mind Nietzsche's core claim, which is at the end of the day, my philosophy is not about individual morality. It is a philosophy of rank order. Mm-hmm. He did say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nietzscheanism, therefore, is this Janus faced itself in the sense that what it allows is a wildly expressive discovery that is dangerous, individualism, creative libertinism, combined with an acknowledgement of the necessity of rank order. Nietzsche says, uh, those who follow me should be more like stones than actors. Yeah? Mm-hmm. It, 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 so there's a paradox here. How can you have both us like a rolling stone? How, that's Nietzscheanism. Mm-hmm. That's a paradox. Mm-hmm. How can a stone be a singular source of self-discovery? But you see, Nietzsche thought that that's what civilization was about. Mm-hmm. And he thought that the egalitarian movements across Europe were extinguishing that real reality. Mm. Because what socialism does, okay, if it were to be successful, is that it obliterates the the, the idea of, of rank. Right, right. And this then becomes a fascinating question and a fascinating debate that Nietzsche haunts the left at. Because if we're honest, he's he's um, making a claim, right, about hierarchy yep. that we need to figure out. We need to figure out if he's right. We need to figure out what society would look like. 
without those hierarchies. We need to ask, are the hierarchies of our world just and true? Mm. That's another thing with Nietzsche and the left. A lot of a lot of people could say, well, Nietzsche argued that the hierarchies of capitalism were not just and true. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's what slave morality partially is, which is there's a physiological imbalance due to a poor system of rank. Mm-hmm. So you see, Nietzsche gets on the inside that he gets on the inside of uh, political communities. That's another argument that I make. That's another way to define Nietzscheanism. Mm-hmm. That's why Nietzscheanism is not just the right. It's not just the left. It's not just the center. Nietzscheanism is almost a kind of distinct methodology that can latch onto almost any political constellation. Mm. That's another way, a good way to think about it. Mm. Mm. This is very interesting because he, there is a lot of paradoxes here. So let's, let's, let's land here, I guess, for a minute about he he has this really interesting throughout all of his writings. He's interesting. Like he's very preoccupied with uh, culture, and he divides this into uh, he he wants to build culture and, as you say, uh, this kind of community building as well. And <clears throat> culture for him was important. Now he, he talks about it in terms of high culture. Um, uh, and I guess I don't know if you can call it low culture, but there, there's these different domains of what culture is or really rank order is really what it is. And I think it's hard sometimes for people to read what he's trying to say because they're not they're not getting it because they're looking at all of the morals that come into something with him. Right. Which I, I get that. I get that. It's uncomfortable yeah. a lot of the times. I, I get that. But I think yeah. if you put that on the shelf for a minute and you just say, okay, well, what's he trying to say? Like, what's his kind of agenda here in terms of like, you know, what's, what's, what's the, the aim here? And he really cared about, I think this is partly why his politics or great politics is so important is because he wanted, he saw culture as really, really, really important. Now uh, let, let's talk about it and how he thought about it. And we might be able to come to, how our current culture is because it's a mess. But I, I think that there's, mm, how do I say this? When I think about a lot of the problems that we face in the United States, in the West, um, in, in, you know, just globally in, in societies, they do seem like cultural issues. And I'm not saying cultural wars necessarily, right? I'm not talking about that. How do we create or build cultures, a culture where we have norms, maybe values, mores, um, uh, history through time with people groups, different people groups, whatever that may be. And we're trying to decide, you know, our, our real politic, right? How do we all live together, uh, you know, uh, and, and how, do we, how, do we, how do we create culture? And, and I think our biggest arguments are always about um, intrusions into that. Uh, sometimes these mm, very emotionally reactive ways of a purity of our culture, uh, which is strange there sometimes. But anyways, I, I find the culture thing really important um, yeah. uh, in the true sense yeah. of the word. So why don't you tell us about what he was meaning about right. this, this high right. culture, and then we can kind of maybe export a little bit to current day. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of this is... Um, so, so Nietzsche's class position was kind of 
I guess you could, you know, you could call it like a bourgeois. It's not necessarily high bourgeois, but he is from um, a kind of, you know, in today's stance, I would, I would characterize like an upper middle class family. He, he retires in his mid thirties with an inheritance. Right. Um, he plays with his money on the stock exchange. Um, he leads a life of um, pretty profound leisure. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the one of the kind of keys that I've found of answering the question of what Nietzsche means by culture is to understand the importance that Nietzsche placed on leisure time mm-hmm. as the foundation of culture. And here again, Nietzsche becomes a educator to. Uh, to 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 the left, but all, well, really to 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 any of his readers, because what Nietzsche saw, and part of what motivated his turn to the Greeks, okay, political turn to the Greeks, mm-hmm. you can see this um, in his early essay on uh, the problem of Socrates, uh, is the idea that in a post-French Revolutionary context, um, massification. Um, the enfranchisement of all men to receive the vote, the, 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 the unfinished demands of the Jacobins, of the egalitarian movement from the French Revolution that opened the French Revolution, the, the, the notion of the fact that Rousseau and Rousseau's notions of universalism, um, all of these constituted a possible breakdown in, in this concept of what's called otium, right? Which is leisure time, but it's not just empty or passive leisure time. Mm-hmm. The kind of leisure time that Nietzsche is interested in is active leisure time, right? It's a type of leisure time that develops distinction. It's a type of uh, leisure time that develops difference. It's a type of leisure time that develops proper rank and dignity, Okay. Without that leisure time, the foundational aspects of high culture would not have a distinction. They would not, we would not be able to produce. Um, and I think as an aesthetic, as a poetic philosopher um, who submits to famously all of these notions uh, coming from as a student of Schopenhauer mm-hmm. of the fundamental illusory nature of reality and so on. Clearly, Nietzsche's um, a thinker of the late German Romantic notion. And so this notion of truth as an existential pain or truth as a sublime ecstasy, right? Um, if, if the culture and the class system, in his, I'm trying to speak from his point of view, mm-hmm. is not capable of allowing for the production of that type of aesthetic experience. This, I think, is one way to go back to your original question about what psychobiographical motivation right. Nietzsche has right, right, right. to be political. Yeah, yeah. You see, because yeah. if, if, if these egalitarian movements are threatening that, you can see how personal and dear that would be as a threat. Yeah, yeah. See? Oh, 100%, yeah. Okay, so that's very interesting. Now, so, of course. So, so wait, so just yeah, on that. So yeah. this, I, I totally, the leisure time, absolutely active, very participatory. Is that is that because in that you, you need, like you need, you need that to create. You can't, you can't be 
encumbered by all of the banalities of life to try and tell you, okay, yeah, 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 but I, I have to have time to do this. And, and no, you, you have to have this active leisure time to say, that's where I can create. I'm not just following or doing. I'm, I'm in a space where I can do that. Uh, like many artists do today, yeah. real artists, like how they do today. They need the time where they're, they're absorbing, but then they're, they're, they're really wrestling and things like that. That, that, that's, exactly. that's what, that's, what's there for creation and that creation or that time for creation is what is contributing most or should be contributing most for developing culture of the highest order. That, that's correct. Hmm. And part of the problem of the Rousseauist and the socialist and the kind of false Epicurean direction that a lot of what we should call philosopher journalists, you know, these kind of rabble intellectuals were advocating is of course the notion that um, free time be expanded. I mean, why did Nietzsche say the saddest day of his life was when he learned that the uprising in 1871 in Paris had burned down the Louvre? Oh yeah. yeah. Think about that. Yeah, yeah. That goes exactly to what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you see, uh, if these rabble, these workers, these, what they're trying to suggest is that the, you see, it's a question of privilege, class. That's what it's about. The socialists are trying to say, you could say to Nietzsche, let's think of a kind of imaginary dialogue, where we would say what? We would say, why can't we have civilization in which all, relish in the the greatness that otium affords us well i I have an answer to that but go on (laughs) this goes this goes back to nietzsche's esoteric agenda Mm -hmm. itself Mm -hmm. why it goes to the point of what he calls the great chain of pain Mm -hmm. as well because you see one of the things that, that he's trying to remind people is that with the disillusion of chattel slavery with the um, problem of what Nietzsche called extra work. You see, Nietzsche was actually a great reader in political economy. Um, it was such a vast autodidact he read in so many areas. He saw capitalism as a, as a problem of not being able to resolve the suffering condition of proletarians. Mm. There's another way why Nietzsche is very close to Marx. Mm. Of course, Marx and Nietzsche have completely different prescriptions about how to deal with the mm-hmm. proletariat, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. but they both talk about it. Mm-hmm. Nietzsche called them the impossible class in gay science, mm-hmm. right? So they're an impossible class. And here you have socialists saying, well, they're, they should have this leisure time commensurate with all. And Nietzsche is saying, no, 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 no. That's not how the Greeks did it. Mm. The Greeks had a specific uh, ranking system in which OTM uh, was reserved for a, 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 a creative class. That goes back to the, the Janus phase, the, the split in society and the community building. Mm. It all, there, you see, this is why Nietzsche is, to me, he's, there's such a unity of Nietzsche, you see? And, um, and, so, and so, but nonetheless, I mean, look at, look at, look at how he uh, assesses America. You know what he says about America? He says America is a civilization. One, it looks like the future, which is terrifying. And two, it has not been able 
to figure out how to introduce OTM. Hmm. He saw America as like too falsely equal in its commercial entrepreneurial spirit. And he said, America is full of exhausted people. <laughs> right? He's very prophetic, isn't he? <laughs> we are all exhausted. <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm not. I read Nietzsche. I'm not, I'm not exhausted. I don't know about you. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I mean, look, look what I do in my spare time. I talk about him for hours, you know. So, but when I talk to people every day, it's just, you know, slaves to work and the whole thing and all these other things in their lives. I mean, yeah. yeah that's it. <laughs> so anyways, um, yeah. So, but you know, uh, but you know, he's, he's, he's pinpointing something about our civilization and it's a correct point. But the prescription that he's offering, I think is, could not be more wrong. Hmm. And now I know that you had a thought on that. I wanted to invite you to. Yeah. So <sighs> I think that I think that for I don't I don't think everybody is there to do Nietzsche's project. I don't think everybody it wants to, cares to. Um I'm not going to say should or shouldn't. I don't know. I can't, I won't go that far. I'm not going to go that far to say, do they, or do they not have the capacity to do that? I won't go that far, but I think a lot of people don't want to do this. They don't want to create. In that way. They don't want to create. They don't want the time, the active uh, uh, leisure time to create and to contribute to culture. I think a lot of people, um, you know, don't have that as a motivation for them. They, they, they have other motivations. And in that way, uh, now, the, my caveat here is this. Within the current framework, within the current system of how we mm-hmm. see things, I just, I don't think that's true. However, I think, I've always thought on this point that Nietzsche's idea was the kind of inverse of how we organize society, right? Where instead of people that are, uh, you know, artists and, and maybe educators and the people that we, we don't value as much in society, if they were kind of on the top, kind of, again, hearkening back to the Greeks, what would society look like? You know, how different would that be? So maybe in that kind of framework, things would be different. But as it is now for billions of people around the world, I don't think a lot of people want to, want to do that project. I don't know if they can or they should. I just don't think a lot of people want to. I think they're very content with taking orders, doing what they want, following the rules or not. Uh, give me the give me the, the the manualized, prescribed ways of doing things, whether it's with religion or whether it's with work or whether it's with social norms. And eh, maybe I'll complain about it sometimes, but whatever, that's it. I don't think a lot of people are up for his project. That that's what I think. Now I could be wrong on that. I could be totally wrong on, on that, but I don't. I think there's plenty of people that are. I mean, uh, but I think that when I talk to a lot of people in different contexts, people in many ways like to be, they like someone else doing it. They like to be told what to do. Just tell me where to be. I'll be there. You could do this, you know, anecdotally, I could give you examples of, you know, small examples in life, you know, how people are with, with how they choose professions or careers, where people are in terms of, um, you know, their politics and how they, how they vote. I just see a lot of that. Again, that's not everybody, but that's that's my kind of pushback on that. Maybe, maybe you say it different, but I see, I see, I see your point. I'll grant you that point. 
I, I see it differently in the following way, because I think that I've thought about how this vision is adopted and absorbed by communities of thought and intention in ways that go to justify existing norms of a society such as ours, which by just basic economic metrics has more inequality than say, even before the French revolution within that milieu, within that context, my contention would be that, um, and I'm not even claiming that public opinion polling can necessarily capture this. My contention would be that there is a vast swarm of people who may appear to be leading lives of mediocrity, but who actually have and face material conditions that prevent them from either opening doors that would, that would allow them to do great things, et cetera, et cetera. So in other words, I see structural domination. And you see, this is actually one of the claims that I make about Nietzscheanism as a desired outcome, which is at the end of the day, Nietzsche said, look, when in his, he, Nietzsche's living in the Second Reich under Bismarck most of the time. And they had this question in the Bismarck period of what they called the social question, the social question. And what was that? Well, it was, how do we suppress the masses demands for more rights? Social insurance was invented during this time, for example, as a way to lubricate and pacify the the mob. And so it's a question of political epistemology. I consider Nietzsche one of the main domains that he operates, not the only, but one, as a political epistemologist. By that, I mean that he is also participating in the social question of his time, trying to answer how we keep vast majorities of people basically at bay, basically content. And part of what his problem with socialists is he's kind of, he's kind of saying, look, I don't really have a problem with poor people or with people leading lives of mediocrity. It kind of agrees with you. I have more of a problem with socialist intellectuals trying to tell them that they're not happy. You you, you see my point because actually what Nietzsche is trying to say is that actually you socialists don't understand suffering and pain. Mm -hmm. And so that then becomes a real debate between Nietzsche and, and us. And this is why Nietzsche is like, has a pugilistic relationship to the left. Mm-hmm. And that's how I see him because, you know, and that, that actually brings us back to a biographical point, mm-hmm. because I feel that if you're somebody that's grown up around people that have, that you've witnessed being held back, being unhappy, having drug issues, number of problems, poverty, whatever have you, right? Maybe they're dealing with race issues. Maybe they're dealing with a number of things. You know, that idea of, uh, well, most of the masses are happy and content as things are. To me, it's not acceptable. Like, to me, I, I do. This is why I love these Nietzscheans like Huey Newton, right? Who, who, who read Nietzsche and said, you know what? Um, the masses are pacified. And that's a problem. I want to unpacify the masses. So I guess to go full circle, you might be right. But what if I said to you that politically, 
Or what would you think if we said politically, well, we want to unpacify people? What would, what would you think about that? No, I, I, I it's just, <laughs> you're, not, you're not in favor of it, really. Uh, I'm deeply skeptical. Skeptical. So, why, why, why? so, so here's, here's, here's why I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical because I, I, I certainly I agree with you. I, gr- I totally grant you that people, um, when they're in certain environments or they're in certain structures, you know, that, that's what they know, right? And so you show them something they don't know. Wow. You know, a whole new world opens up. <clears throat> and obviously those things have impact on people, right? where you grow up, where your context is, you saw someone in drugs, you know, whatever, all these contexts. Totally, totally agree. I just think the, as, as resilient as humans are, my cynical approach to humans is the reason why things like religion are so powerful and so effective is because for many civilizations, they keep people together and they don't have to worry and think about big things every day. And that's it. <laughs> it's done for them. And, and this is why you have very smart, very logical, rational people believing absolutely fucking bonkers dogma from so many religions that are thousands of years old. Now, obviously, mm. I'm not a religious person, right? And so, I, but I understand it. I understand it, all right? I understand the allure. I understand the comfortability. I understand, um, what was it that Freud said in the, in the discontents? Uh, you know, that it's like you know, people of religion have like, you know, it's like the biggest daddy issue or whatever it is. I, I can't remember at the moment, but yes, it's, it's, the, it's the all-powerful father that takes care of everything and it's got, he's got it together, right? It's that whole thing. I, I don't think if you, if you take that away from the masses, look, I mean, some people will be great. I think some people are, are, are wanting that. They're, they're like, yes, like, let's go. I think most people will be overwhelmed with angst and anxiety and they cannot, they will be overloaded. I think they will be overloaded. Yeah. And look, if this isn't, this isn't my, <laughs> authoritarian kind of fascist thing where we need to keep all the masses at bay. And like, this is my kind of, I'm not saying I, I agree with it or I like it. I'm just saying from in the reality, I just think there's a lot of people that they're like, look, I didn't sign up for that. I don't want to do that. Like, let's just keep things organized the way they are. Yeah. There's you know shitty things about it, but I can't think about that. I, can, I don't want to think about that. I want to go. I want to do my things. I want to come home. I don't want to have to, you know, this and that. That's not who I am. My approach to that is that a lot, enough people are like that. And if you take that away, um, you know, I mean, this is maybe partly of, you know, that whole thing of, you know, when, when we've killed God and we don't have a structure anymore, there's chaos, right? There's that structure is gone. You know, the shadow looms large, but I, I just don't, I, I don't say I could be wrong, but I, my cynical view is, I'm deeply skeptical and have a hundred thousand questions uh, about it. You, di- yeah. you disagree? No, uh, it's not that I disagree. It's, it's that, um, I think there's an element that we're not adding to the 
conversation, which is okay. the element I would argue of um, education in uh, shared social commitments and shared social realities. So the question of the passivity of what you are describing sounds to me like a very consumer capitalist era form of kind of resignation that the system permits you to to resign and to, to sort of fall into these sort of um, comfortable outlets of, of commodity consumption, television, the phone, et cetera. And I think obviously um, that has a uh, herd mentality proliferation effect. The point that I make in my book, by the way, is that Nietzsche, from the standpoint of his political epistemology, was fine with the idea of mediocrity existing on condition that it has a distinction from, uh, you know, those free spirits or ubermensch who mm-hmm. will rise above and so on and so forth. The, the problem is, is this introduction of shared commitments in a new conception of citizenship and shared see, see So, so one way to look at this savior would be like, okay, Let's say we have global climate change. Let's say we have intractable social conflicts and inequality. And actually the consciousness of the people needs to be mutated, touched, transformed, radicalized. What does that look like? What if, what if that's necessary to some extent, not completely, but to some extent, right? Because the stakes are important for social transformation. It's kind of a question about social transformation, social change. Okay. I'm not sure that the status quo, if we wish to change the status quo, you almost need to universalize Nietzscheanism. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, and then, then I'd finally say, and, and we can move to a different topic. I'd finally say this. I'd finally say, I am not confident that the majority of people really are content with their lot. I think actually there's probably a lot of anguish and discontent that people have with their current lot in life. And I think that that's a reflection of certain material economic uh, realities. That would be my contention, but that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think deep down, I think you're right. I, I agree with your last point. I do agree with that. I think that's too many layers deep and people don't get there. So. Okay. Right. Two things. Um, so I think what you're saying, I, I think I understand it and I get it. I think if you had this, this kind of Nietzscheism kind of, kind of social uh, wave of sorts globally, I think a few generations down the road, 50, 100 years. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's, I don't, if, if that did happen, yes, I think it could be that way. And I think it could be thriving and successful. Well, one of the other arguments that I make in the book is I, I rely on a, a wonderful sociologist um, who, uh, named Rekovitz, Andres Rekovitz, who, who put forward an, a book called The Society of Singularities. Hmm. And this is actually his argument, which is that, like it or not, we have a society that ideologically splits itself and its conception of, of class on the basis of an imminent winner and loser dichotomy mm-hmm. in which the winners 
are what he calls self-singularized individuals who have realized their highest brand potential. Mm -hmm. What that means is that they've had the kind of most fluid and singular self-realization vis-a-vis their job, their career, and so on. So in other words, the, the least the, the, the highest pinnacle of what it means to make it in society is to have a kind of non-contradictory brand, hmm. right? That your occupation is a full reflection of like where, where, where you could say almost like you become a stone in the rank, hmm. uh, which is exact. And this is why I say it is actually in some sense Nietzschean, in some sense, because, because the society now has the ideology, and I, I use the word ideology because I don't think it's true, right? of the sense in which, yeah, there are winners and losers in our society, mm-hmm. right? And I actually argue that that mythology of winners and losers, um, because Nietzsche, Nietzsche once said something that, I only write my books for those whose lives have turned out well. Mm-hmm. Very mm-hmm. interesting phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you see my point? Nietzsche himself believed that there's something like winners and losers. Mm-hmm. I think as a socialist, I have seen material realities too closely ever submit to the notion that anything like that is true. Mm. I think actually I would reverse Nietzsche's notion of the world as illusion and so on uh, on a completely different side away from the will. Mm. It's a different form of determination of that. Mm. Anyways, the point I'm trying to say is that um, the social pressure that people have is still on this kind of Nietzschean call calling mm. of, of what, what Peter Sloterdijk calls this is why Peter Sloterdijk calls Nietzsche the opening of the fifth gospel, which he calls the age of narcissism, mm. in which Nietzsche's calling is what everyone now lives out. Mm. So you see Sloterdijk gives a perfect definition of Nietzscheanism right there, mm-hmm. which is uh, you, Savior, me, Daniel, we must fully realize ourselves completely on the market in, in full non-contradictory self-singularized fashion and do so in a dangerous way. Hmm. That's why the market for Slaughterdike is good and competition is good because it keeps that danger. Hmm. It keeps that uncertainty. It keeps that contingency. Hmm. So uh, that, it's one way that we are Nietzsche's children. Mm-hmm. If, if you, if you believe that line. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think that there's some truth to that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I just want to say, there was one. There was one point you, you mentioned about this kind of social kind of you know people. People really do want that. And they could get on board. And I, the first thing that popped in my head, maybe it's just a recency thing, but it's like, okay, well, number one, people around the world either there's a small handful of people that don't believe climate change exists. Uh, at least they say that publicly. I don't think they really believe that in their hearts. But then there's enough people or enough people in power that don't do enough or anything at all right. about it, and that's like. The biggest thing, uh, one of the biggest things for us as a, as a society globally, right. also, I mean, we don't have to get into it, but just as an example, you saw this with COVID-19 and the pandemic. I mean, the, right. the thing that was literally killing people in summer of 2020, pre-vaccine, et cetera, uh, you know, everyone had an opinion about it. No, no, no one, no one said, here's our moment. Here's what, I mean, we failed that test. These are small things in the big picture. You start talking about culture and you start talking about how do we do these things. I just, I have a, I have a a paradoxical view of humanity. I think humans can do the best things and the worst things kind of at the same time. 
And I take a cynical approach here with, 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 with humans on this of, yeah, people don't want to do that. They can't, they can't get their ducks in line uh, in a row on, you know, kind of these softball issues. I mean, a, a, a global pandemic, we couldn't get our shit together. I mean, it just, a lot of people did, but a lot of people didn't. And, and still right. these obnoxious ripple effects of people still yelling about it where it where has high consequence. I, I, if we can't do something like that, ah, man, I can't, I can't think of something a little bit more abstract or nebulous like culture and building culture. I, I, have, I just, I'm, I'm a little cynical on that. Well, I mean, I think part of what the argument what I would put forward would be that um, from a Marxist point of view, culture and material possibility of humanity is as a historical dialectic that's driven by moments of, 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 of times in which we have had egalitarian pivots mm-hmm. in the distribution of resources, in revolutions have changed like i mean whatever you think about uh stalin mm-hmm. i'm no fan of stalin but one thing we can say is that 1917 in russia if you take like goran thurborn's recent recent work on this women's rights across russia and china because after russia chinese eventually had a communist revolution as well they basically abolished the peasantry and they enfranchised women more quickly than Europe had ever done. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and so there's, there's moments in which humanity can accelerate towards more positive equality based ends. And I think one of the arguments I would furthermore make is that capitalism is a, is a society based on a particular form of individualism Mm -hmm. that's anti-collectivist, which really, really keeps a very tense, hierarchical form it's a paradoxical hierarchy that that keeps that animistic uh, separation that agonistic separation rather uh in place and so social change social cooperation is not really meant to function well in our society by design and i think we need more large-scale or political organization to show that we can do large-scale cooperation Right. Like right now, like what's happening in Palestine, the fact that just two countries are allowing for the continuation of this violence when the whole world, the vast majority of the world wants it just to stop. And I'm not even making any claim about Israel or Palestine. I'm just talking about, okay, you know, 7,000 children have been killed. Let's just, can we stop that? We can't even stop that. Mm -hmm. Right. Why not? You know what I mean? So there's certain, I mean, I agree with you, but I don't want to go down the rabbit's hole because I mean, it's interesting. We are a big, a big motif of Nietzsche was of course, to redefine pessimism after Schopenhauer Mm -hmm. to return to Nietzsche and the um, aesthetics of pessimism was, was very, very significant for Nietzsche. Why though? Well, it was again against a lot of the socialist intellectuals who he saw as naively optimistic, Mm -hmm. right? It's again going back to Nietzsche as operating in the world of political epistemology, mm-hmm. which we can we can discuss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 no, I, I think it's right. I mean, I think that yes, I I, I, I hear a lot of what you're saying, and I, I, I do I do grant you those those pieces where you can have moments. There's these big shifts, um, whether they were through revolution or things like that. Absolutely. Um, so that that's why I kind of leave that kind of back door open. It's like you know, it could, 
it could. Um, and, and who knows, right? Who knows? But um, I, I take it more, I mean, this is kind of on brand, I guess, for me, but just who people are internally. Um, I don't know. I think that, I think a lot of people, I, I think there's this push, you know, this push-pull kind of thing of, maybe if they were in different environments or a different structure of society, then, you know, they could access those things. I think it's, I'm not, I'm unsure about the capacity question there, but um, it is an interesting one. It is, it is an interesting one. So, okay, let's talk about, um, we've been touching a little bit on this stuff. So this will be interesting here. So you've, you mentioned at different points, um, you know, Nietzsche doesn't, definitely he doesn't like socialism there's problems he sees with socialism or new instincts and pleasures and this claim to rights was a problem for him we can we can talk about that um we can talk about that there and we can also talk about his ideas of a, a working caste right and and his kind of these ideas which again this is where people start getting real like you know anxious when they <laughs> when they read these things so kind of talk to us about uh, problems with socialism and and uh, the, the the rights. I think the rights is a really interesting thing because we talk about that all the time in society and the the caste situation. So Nietzsche at one point says that his politics is an aristocratic radicalism, which is of course um, has to be understood proleptically mm-hmm. because he's not a nostalgic thinker. Mm-hmm. This is a great great um, kind of temporal. Uh, distinction there, right? Which is, yeah, he's a genealogist, he's an expert in the Greeks, but it's not correct to say that he wants to resurrect the Greeks in any kind of vulgar way. Yeah, yeah. No, he's a kind of aristocrat of the future. Mm, mm. And he's knowledgeable enough about existing capitalism as he finds it to see the continuation of different forms of caste that were from prior forms of mode of production that exist now. And a lot of what we find in Nietzsche's commentary about capitalism and property rights and political economy revolves around um, advice that he would often give to the management around how one would think about things like the wage, how one would think about um, compensation so that um, one of the things that Nietzsche is concerned with is there's this very interesting moment in the French Revolution, which I talk about in the book, where the French Revolution tried to introduce full equality of the wage. Mm. And it didn't work. It's called the Le Chapelier Law. And the long story short is that it, it, it bottomed out. And this is what Malcolm Bull refers to in his book Anti-Nietzsche as Nietzsche's Nietzsche and the problem of extra egalitarianism, which is the argument that Nietzsche says uh, egalitarianism becomes a problem when it is excessively obsessed with ensuring that everyone has an equal, it's kind of this kind of like um, um, strict egalitarianism is what they call it in, in, in philosophy, strict egalitarianism. He's just highly opposed to this. And he sees that as the engine of nihilism, Mm, right? mm. And that's why he, and also the engine of value, the contestation of value making itself. Okay. So obviously the socialists have a, have a, a, a major 
there's a major pugilistic exchange, a major contestation, a major debate that they're going to have with Nietzsche. Now, of course, why Nietzsche and Marx are so important in this regard is, of course, because Marx was a huge crit critic of all forms of socialism, just like Nietzsche was. But what I try to show in my book is that the lines by which Nietzsche and Marx examine equality, examine um, religion, examine ideology, examine um, the status of the worker, you know, literally couldn't be different, more different from one another. Mm. For, let's take the example of private property. Um, Nietzsche argued that um, the foundation of the project of individualism right, would collapse if we were permitted or we were, we were ushered into a world of full communal property, hmm. right, this kind of commune thing. Part of the reason why Nietzsche hated the commune idea. Um, and that it would only re-entrench slave morality, right? Now, obviously, for someone like Marx and as a communist, one of the things that Nietzsche did, did know about communists, he did underline Marx's name. We, we know this from... Um, <clears throat> Thomas uh, Brobscher's uh, intellectual biography of Nietzsche and others. Mm. So he was kind of aware of communism, and, he, and Nietzsche actually saw the communists as the most scary of the socialists. He, saw, he, he, he thought because they were the least Epicurean, and they were the most rationalist. In other words, they put their own personal motivations outside of their objectives. Mm -hmm. So he saw them as fanatical Rousseauists. Mm some sense. You see, because Nietzsche could argue with the Epicureans, right? Um, like, uh, like Mill and liberal socialists. But I think Nietzsche was actually more scared, uh, afraid of communists, uh, which is an interesting side point. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot to be said about this. I think, I think that Nietzsche offers, um, uh, like, like, uh, what I, what, Part of, part, of it, part of this has to do with the fact that you have to situate your perspective when you are reading Nietzsche mm -hmm. as it pertains to where you fall on a number of these issues. If you are a socialist, if you are an anarchist, if you are a liberal, if you are, let's say, a kind of apolitical person, maybe more spiritual, you're coming at Nietzsche, these questions maybe are going to be more in the background for you. My book is really written with a particular audience in mind. I have a left audience in mind, right? And I have a sense, a premonition that Nietzsche has duped a lot of people in this domain and that we have kind of, in some cases, absorbed some of his positions here when they are, in fact, quite antithetical, I think, ultimately to, to, to um, socialist principles. So I don't know if you're um, not, I, I don't mean to be speaking like a language only to socialists and to shut that down, but that is a part of my mm -hmm. thing, which is Nietzsche and the left. Mm -hmm. So that is, that is, that, that must be, um, that, mu that must be said. Um, but, I, but I would just say, I, I guess, finally that, you know, you know, Nietzsche understood that private property was a linchpin of the dissemination of great ideas and of great individuals. And that um, Marx understood that the power of capitalism, like what keeps its semblance composed, um, is, the, is the tyranny, of, is the dominance of private property relations. Now, 
Marx is not necessarily interested in some quick and easy transition from private property to communal property. He's not, he's not, that's more utopian socialist, mm -hmm. right? Marx is actually interested in a working class seizure of the mode of production and making wealth communal and opening things up, but not necessarily eradicating private property in some vulgar sense, by the way, by the way, I think that a lot of libertarians have a anxiety about Marxism because they think that it's about taking your property away, taking your car away or some weird conspiracy of libertarians. Chinese. Libertarians have a lot of anxiety about a lot of things. So, <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm not on that like hyper thing. No, I mean, just to be clear, like Marxism, the worldview of Marxism is largely um, the perspective of the unity of the international working class to increase egalitarian possibility for all of humanity. And the argument being that in capitalism, the vast majority of people um, are held down and that a socialist system would um, universally modify the mode of production to create a commonwealth, right? So, so there's, there's, a, there's a whole, there's not that much speculation on what communist society would be, but I mean, as a Marxist, that's what I understand Marxism to be about. And I don't see it as a big totalitarian boogeyman, just so we're clear. <laughs> um, now, to get back to Nietzsche, I mean, part of his vision here is, um, my argument is, is that ultimately he's very much a thinker of the preservation of the status quo. Right. And so as, as anyone like, 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 let's say, let's put it this way, whether you are on what, wherever you find yourself on the left, mm -hmm. right. One thing you can agree on is that the status quo needs to be transformed. Nietzsche and Nietzscheanism, I see, and you may disagree with me. Kind of as a comprehensive philosophy designed to sort of prevent that, right? Now, now, um, that's not to say, let me just stop there. That's not to say that people cannot and have not um, appropriated mm. or read Nietzsche as parasites, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. Which is a distinction that I make. I, I, I try to argue this. I try to say, look, if you read Nietzsche as an apolitical, decentered philosopher and you just accept all of his visions, you're going to have a hard time changing the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. Can't do that. That's what I call elective affinity. Right? If you think <laughs> that's a good, that you that's just a good have phrase. this kind of. That's a great phrase. You, you, know, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. What I mean? That's a great phrase. In that, in that way, you know, he can, he'll, he'll, he'll have a victory. Yeah. Okay. Um, but if you are like Jack London, if you are like Huey Newton, if you are like um, Kurt Eisner, one of the first, what I call parasitical reading methods, very interesting guy. He led a socialist revolution in 1918 in Bavaria. Max Weber, the famous German sociologist, mm -hmm. argued, you know, his famous notion of the charismatic personality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He based it off of Kurt Eisner. Mm -hmm. Kurt Eisner wrote a book in German, uh, which is, could kind of be translated to like um, spiritual psychopathy. Mm. Um, the aristocratic uh, vision of Friedrich Nietzsche, mm. which is an argument for how socialists okay, need to adopt Nietzsche's notions for achieving worker victory. And pretty much that's what he did in Bavaria, because it was basically, it was a success, successful revolution. 
it got suppressed later, but it did happen. So anyways, there's a whole lineage of, of these kind of Marxist, you could call them kind of parasitical appropriations of Nietzsche. Now, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm less okay with this notion that Nietzsche is right about everything and we should just accept him as a grand genius. I think when you do that, then you, um, his aristocratic agenda wins. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, I, I would agree with you on the last point. I don't think he's right about everything. Uh, about the status quo, hmm. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. Um, I, I mean, I see what you mean. I think there's certainly a, a preservation of, of many aspects of that. I don't know um, how you can have a kind of philosophy of life and creating and continue to have status quo at some point. But yes, I mean, I see, I see, I see what when you're saying. When I say status quo for me, mm-hmm. I mean like class and economic primarily. I mean, I mean, I mean it broad material um, distribution. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, so if, if part of what I, what I argue in the book is that Nietzsche is becoming under suspicion by philosophers today because post-2008, our economic order is becoming more unequal. Yeah, yeah. And this is what they call the neo-feudal thesis, which um, I'm not convinced by it, but I think it's an interesting idea that our society is becoming more, more like caste structure than class. Then you can see how, like, even in a society of what I call before the society of singularities, mm-hmm. even in that society, there's a weird sense and feeling and material reality that people aren't able to have any social mobility. Mm-hmm. That can be both, like, this is like a big debate we see right now with a lot of these liberal think tank people <laughs> with, with Biden. Did you notice this on Twitter? They're saying, like, oh, <clears throat> why are people so unhappy? With Biden, right. the economy's gotten better. Right, 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 right. right. Well, you see, <clears throat> there's a kind of psychoanalytic point, <clears throat> which is that people have a latency period, right? Mm-hmm. So their unhappiness is not uh, uh, located in this immediacy. So, so there's many factors at work, but what I'm trying to say is more this line of status quo as a material status quo, that kind of dimension. I think Nietzscheanism forecloses that. Yeah, yeah, I'm not. I'm unsure, but I, I, I get, I get your point. I mean, I think that I, I'm, I'm unsure on that. I do think that, um, you know, in terms of a hierarchy, in terms of certain structures, um, I, I think it's true that he would say you need to have those, or it needs to be some rank order. Um, how much of that continues or persists, uh, I'm not sure. But I, I wonder. So. Wait, I will jump to this, I guess. But I guess my my question here is: is this is kind of the, this is kind of the 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 kind of the twist here, I guess, in the book is you talk about all these things about how Nietzsche feels about socialism, about how he feels about all of these things, but then the whole parasitic reading of it is: but yeah, we gotta we gotta take that and learn from it, and and there's a kind of twist there in the book, so. If you're if you're proposing some of those ideas on the left, but you're saying obviously if you read him, he's not for that. How do you accurately use or interpret uh, some of the things Nietzsche says? You know, in that in that kind of uh, you know 
I guess you could say far left or, you know, socialist, uh, you know, or Marxist kind of approach then? How, how would you be able to use the ideas from, from, from Nietzsche? Well, you'd only have to use them on condition that they have a certain victory over our culture. You would only have to use them as a defensive measure because the left has already absorbed Nietzsche. Hmm. That's the point. Okay. The left has absorbed Nietzsche already, and they read Nietzsche poorly by decontextualizing him historically, by underemphasizing the fact that he puts so much onus on political reaction in the architecture of his concepts. So, in that sense, the left, in many different, and here when I say the left, I mean like theorists on the left, mm-hmm. philosophers mm-hmm. of the left, we can name them. Mm-hmm. That's, that's how. Mm-hmm. It's working in a dialogue with Nietzsche, with Nietzscheanism, and with left Nietzscheans. That's what it is. It's not so much saying that Nietzsche himself has something objectively sound to say, let's use it. No, it's saying Nietzscheanism is this complex cultural political phenomenon and interpretive community. Let's offer a different interpretation. And furthermore, um, let's offer a reading method that can excite socialists and leftists to read him in a way that they haven't discovered before. Like in Zarathustra, when Nietzsche invites his readers to deny him, to fight him, to challenge him, to contest with him, Mm -hmm. to struggle with Mm him. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, when I first read Walter Kaufman, I never really struggled with Nietzsche. I didn't struggle with Nietzsche until I started to read these Marxist interpretations that were really pointing out the agenda. And that's when I really benefited because I'm like, oh my gosh, it's kind of like coming full circle to somebody that you, a thinker that you really used to admire. You still kind of admire him, but now you 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 raise to a challenge because you see this diametric opposition of worldview that you have with him. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to laugh him off as like, oh, he's just an aristocratic. No, mm-hmm. it's because you can't laugh him off because he's had a certain victory on our culture. Mm-hmm. He's had a victory on the left. So it's not so much like Nietzsche said something X, let's learn from it. It's more like mm-hmm. Nietzsche is this embedded feature. Where does it appear? How are we reading him? And how can we, how might we, because I mean, my, my method of parasite is, is obviously the psychoanalytic idea of working through. <laughs> I argue that a lot of these mm, different interpretations don't really care to work through. They kind of just here, take him as a great yeah. mm-hmm. keep it there. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think that we need to sort of work through and transcend him, mm-hmm. right? So that, that would be my answer to that. Mm-hmm. Right. I hope, I hope that kind of mm-hmm. clarifies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the, uh, the folks that we've mentioned, and we haven't talked about him, and we don't have to spend a lot of time on him, but, you know, he's, as, a, as we mentioned in the beginning, he's, a, he's got a big book. I mean, this book is massive. I mean, I know he passed a couple of years ago, but uh, Lacerdo was, I mean, he wrote, and this thing's like a, almost 1,100 pages. Uh, it took me a couple of months to get, <laughs> to get through it. Uh, I'm referencing Nietzsche, the aristocratic rebel, intellectual biography and critical balance sheet. Uh, It's great. And uh, he talks about these four stages of Nietzsche, uh, which I think you mentioned in the book as well. 
and talks about this uh, aristocratic radicalism. Um, if I remember correctly, the four stages are the metaphysical stage, solitary rebel. Uh, is this right? Anti-moralist and aristocratic Anti-moralist radicalism. And aristocratic radicalism. Yeah, yes. just just what's his? Because you know, Lucero is on the left very much. So as a left thinker, and and you pull from from obviously you reference him. He's a he's a powerhouse in a lot of ways. But talk about these four stages of how he's seen Nietzsche and, and uh, what, what your thoughts are on, on, on that reading. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, Aristocratic Rebel is quite an achievement of a book. Um, let me just say something quickly about kind of the high-level claims. Mm. Maybe it would be helpful for, for listeners sure, sure. of like what Lacerdo is trying to claim in the book. And then we can drill down to these stages. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Because I mean, I, I interviewed Jeff Waite and um, about uh, Lacerda's book mm. um, in 2021, mm. and um, well, Jeff Waite was not a fan. He wasn't. Of the idea. Interesting. No, 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 no. Well, no. Uh, he liked the book oh, in many ways, okay, okay. but he was not a fan of the notion that Nietzsche has distinct stages. Okay. He thinks. Okay. He thinks that Nietzsche has theaters, right, and that Nietzsche is somebody that you enter uh and can enter in different periods but these periods have certain through lines he has has a completely kind of non-linear way of looking at it interesting that's very interesting he doesn't think that this linear idea of stages he thinks it's too mechanistic of a model to apply to nietzsche because nietzsche is too singular of a thinker interesting anyways interesting um but losardo's argument is that the center of nietzsche's thought is found in political historiography primarily, and that the center of Nietzsche's thought is found as a response to the French Revolution. And he provides a kind of strategy by which to analyze Nietzsche through putting Nietzsche in dialogue with an existing meta-critique of the political movements of Nietzsche's time. Mm. And so Lacerdo convincingly, I think, shows Nietzsche to be very, very bound up with uh, the political dynamics of a post-French revolutionary Europe. And he shows this through uh, a deep investigation into Nietzsche's library, into what Nietzsche was reading. Uh, by, by, you know, for example, Lacerdo will take letters that the young Nietzsche wrote and reveal you see, because this, as, an, as a side point, you know, Francois Laruelle, the French philosopher, once referred to Nietzsche as a philosopher of high journalism, mm. in the sense that Nietzsche was a philosopher of the current events. Mm. And I think that this, this whole notion of Nietzsche's stages also have to be periodized in relationship to the unfolding of political events in his time. So the first thing we're shown is that the birth of tragedy has to be understood in the context of Nietzsche's conscription into the Franco-Prussian War, even though he didn't fight in the war, Mm. and that the background of the Paris Commune, which was almost a response to that. So literally why socialism is so important is partially because uh, French had a burgeoning, I mean, Germany was the center after 1848 of the workers' movement. It was a huge deal, way bigger than it is, say, now. Germany was also occupied culturally by the Napoleonic regime, and Nietzsche lived in the wake of that. And 
Therefore, this Rousseauist egalitarian French spirit always bothered him a lot. So in his early phase, Nietzsche flirted with a type of romantic German nationalism, mm. according to Lacerdo. As another thing that Lacerdo brings out is that Nietzsche has a certain implicit connection to existing liberal traditions. He really puts uh, Nietzsche in dialogue with um, liberal hi historical thinkers, Alexis de Tocqueville, mm. um, Taine, Burkhardt, and shows their influence on Nietzsche's thinking, especially in the development of Nietzsche's notion of the genealogical method that he refines, that he develops. Um, Lacerdo argues in the early stage, Nietzsche uh, could have titled The Birth of Tragedy uh, The Crisis of Civilization from Socrates to the Paris Commune. Mm. He thinks that would have been an appropriate subtitle to them mm. as an alternative title. Mm -hmm. because. Again, the esoteric strategy is that Nietzsche is directly responding to these, these egalitarian ideas. And so this is what aristocratic rebel does, is that it tracks the imminent social and political events of Nietzsche's time and shows the kind of ferment that these encounters and experiences and how they shaped Nietzsche how the, the movement into the solitary rebel experience also was a response to a perceived failure of his community building project. That itself is a recurring motif in his, in his project. Um, so it is a kind of political biography project. Um, it also gives certain um, impetus and context to the way that certain Nietzschean concepts are developed, such as perspectivism or the eternal return, which in my book, as you know, I really lean on, mm -hmm. not completely, but, a, but a, a fair amount, in part, again, because, uh, take the eternal return, uh, well, it just so happens that the leader of the Paris Commune, this guy, uh, Louis-Auguste Blanqui, was a philosopher, political thinker hmm. of the eternal return. He literally had a theory of the eternal return, which you could call, which Lucido refers to almost as like a socialist version of the eternal return. Hmm. Hmm. And Nietzsche was therefore seeking to create a kind of, uh, you know, a kind of aristocratic alternative of the eternal return. Hmm. So these readings have been very interesting because, you know, a lot of Nietzschean specialists have responded very warmly to the book. I'm thinking here of, um, of a lot of folks that do work on Nietzsche and Judaism, for example, mm. like Robert Holub, mm. a very preeminent Nietzsche scholar. And, you know, uh, I spoke to him, I saw him at a conference mm. on aristocratic rebel, and he argued that Lacerdo uncovered a truth about Nietzsche's relationship to Elizabeth Forster, Nietzsche's sister, mm. that nobody had quite seen before. Mm. And furthermore, that Nietzsche, that this... Uh, a big important text for Lacerdo is the problem of Socrates' lecture in the early period, where uh, he has this dialogue around anti-Semitism. And so Lacerdo provides a new way of thinking about Nietzsche and anti-Semitism, which is completely different than the accepted version. Yeah. It's not a, not a good story for Nietzscheans in the sense that what Lacerdo concludes is that actually... Uh, there was censorship by Elizabeth, mm -hmm. 
that the censorship was not a reflection of her uh, portraying him to be more anti-Semitic than he was. The anti-Semitism was implicit there, but Nietzsche sought to conceal it, long story short. Mm -hmm. So a lot is revealed in this text. Um, A lot is revealed. There's much to be said about it. Um, I'll be very curious to see how you found it. I mean, I think, again, I I agree with weight. I'm not too convinced by the stages. Um, I do like that. It's just what I'm hearing on it. I do think these ideas of theaters is much better than the stages. I, I do like that framing. Yeah. One thing that I found interesting in this notion of the um, third stage is you see, here's a way for us to understand uh, Nietzsche experiences Second Reich ascend to the pacification of the anti-socialist laws and the pacification of the worker struggle. And this is what allows Nietzsche to create what Lucerto calls a Dionysian theodicy of happiness. Mm. So the early birth of tragedy pessimism mutates and changes into an affirmation, into an amor fati. And that's a really interesting way Mm. of thinking about the imminent political context of the liberal order that Nietzsche is now able to affirm as a kind of natural order. And this is a big big thing um, in a sense because it goes back to this question of the status quo Mm. and Nietzsche, Mm -hmm. which is... In a sense, what Losurdo says is that Nietzsche kind of experienced a moment in the Second Reich at which the social problem had become solved in some sense. So he's able to to be there. But then the final stage is this kind of is is where I think the prolepsis and the the futural and the prophetic really becomes refined. Mm. At which point. It's more about this community to come, you know, but that, that, that period, which is like late middle human, all too human and dawn and other texts like that is uh, this Dionysian theodicy of happiness. A very interesting period um, that, that I found that I found quite useful. It's where the notion of innocence of becoming really emerges by the way. So, uh, <clears throat> There's so much there. Um, of course, in the conclusion, the appendices of mm-hmm. Aristocratic Rebel, we are introduced to a reading method that Lucero refers to as hermeneutics of innocence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, he throws all of the left Nietzscheans under the bus to some extent. I mean, I happen to, I happen to very much agree with this mm. basic point, mm-hmm. um, you know, which, which, uh, which is basically that... Uh, um, you know, in my language, uh, you can uncover a lot of truths about the esoteric dimension of Nietzsche through this political reading. And when you do that, um, a lot of like pieces of the puzzle coalesce. And I feel like, um, that's sobering. Um, that definitely de-intensifies the mystery of Nietzsche, but if you are a person of the left and you're committed to this kind of egalitarian tradition, which I think many people are, you know, that, that, that then means something different. You know, Nietzsche then be, Nietzsche means something different. You know what I mean? And I do think that, that you can kind of read Kaufman, right? You can read Kaufman's translations and miss that. 
I think that's true. Absolutely. I mean, I think most people agree, and maybe he mentions it as well, is you know, Kaufman's just super outdated. I mean, it's just it's just really out. I think it was fine at the beginning for English, but I think it's just it's just really antiquated at this point. I mean, it just it just really is. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's still I mean, you can still gain a lot from it, but I think I sure. think a fuller picture, a fuller picture in revealing all of these um these darker aspects, mm-hmm. you know, these mm-hmm. is 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 more authentic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think with Lucerto, I mean, like I said, I read it. I've read it once, and it took me a couple months. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot to take in. It's it's dense. It's a lot. But this is an interesting, and it, it, maybe even from translation, there's a kind of clarity in how he writes. Like it's not hard to read. It's not. It's pretty. I found it pretty easy to follow. But he has this way of kind of following early, middle, late. You know, Nietzsche. I do like his. I thought it was. I don't have an opinion about it. I thought his. It was interesting about stuff with Will to Power, his sister, anti-Semitism. Um, but he has a kind of respectful tone of how much Nietzsche is um, really, I mean, his political inf- or how much he was influenced by, by politics of his day. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of things. I mean, I, I probably, you know, underlined and dog-eared so much because I was like, I have to, I got to come back to this. You know, this is, this is a lot, you know, so. Um, but yeah, I think it's overall, I mean, I think it's a, I mean, it's a masterpiece. There's things I didn't agree with, but there's a lot of things I did. I was like, wow, that's a, that's a really valuable perspective. Um, so I thought, yeah, I, thought I, mean, it was, I thought it was, it was tremendous. I mean, it's tremendous. Yeah. Because like, I feel like Nietzsche is so enshrined in our culture. Like some of these ideas of like, be careful fighting monsters that you don't become one or don't look into the abyss uh, and it looks back at you or you know, this is all, yeah. All these things. Yeah. Amor <laughs> Fati. Yeah. 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 But, you know, when you understand that, like, the social conditions of the Second Reich changed and mutated, mm-hmm. and that led him to have the capacity to think about a concept like Amar Fati, or when you think about the eternal return as a imminent debate with socialists. Yeah. It reads different. Like, I mean, that, it reads different. That's, 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 so, that's so cool mm-hmm. to think mm-hmm. about it that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you don't, you don't have to then abandon... It just enriches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of a lot of folks feel like threatened. Like, oh, mm-hmm. well, gosh, if he has these negative agendas against the left, then like, is he a bad guy? I mean, there, then you need Nietzsche to show. Well, it's not about good or bad. Or yeah. It's not like, <laughs> right, right. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. that's actually my thing. Is like, <clears throat> that's not how philosophy works. Like, no. F- philosophers can come from the right, the left, and so on. They, they, they. Their concepts contribute something singular that transcends that in some ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, I mean, this is, this is why we still, we still read and get so much out of Heidegger. And, you know, he's, he's, he's <laughs> problems, many problems with Heidegger. But uh, he, his ideas can be, again, he can, ideas can come from left, right, middle, um, but there's things to, to extract from him. So... I want to ask uh, just one big thing before uh, before I ask my final question. Obviously, this could be uh, two hours by itself, so you know uh, you can you can give me the the abbreviated version. But um, because you mentioned some of your work with religion, I got to ask you about Nietzsche and religion, of course, right? And oh, so yeah. you know um, you can you can take as much time as you want on it. But you talk about this role of religion for Marx and for Nietzsche, and how they viewed religion similarly and differently. 
they both saw ideology as a problem in religion. Uh, I certainly do as well. I think, I still think his, I think it's mostly placed in the Antichrist. Um, his critique of Christianity, I think, is still one of the best because he doesn't do a lot of the like really simplistic critiques that even people today do. He, he has a very, I mean, I think his background was, uh, he was um, kind of raised Christian, but you know, when he was very young and then he, he left it and stuff. But he, he has a deep understanding of the philosophical problems with a lot of Christianity um, and some of the theological ones, I think. So, uh, you know, as being the most, one of these very anti-human kinds of ways of thinking. So, so anyways, can you tell us how, how religion fits in here, um, how Marx and Nietzsche viewed it uh, kind of similar, different in, in this how they didn't like ideology is, uh, in, in religion. Yeah. I have an argument here in which there's a certain paradox because Marx and Nietzsche have a seeming coalescence, a seeming unity on so many different social and political issues and religion is one of them. Mm -hmm. And I show that in a sense, both saw religion as a kind of opium of the masses. Mm -hmm. In other words, both saw religion as a kind of illusory community (laughs) that put forward a kind of mystified universalism and that um, concealed uh, and by, by opium of the masses, what that was meant is that it conceals pain mm-hmm. that exists in society. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. It gives some kind of alleviation to that pain. Mm-hmm. Right? And, um, you know, we already touched upon this notion that um, in Nietzsche's view, uh, part of what massification post-French Revolution was was doing, spread of of democracy and so on, um, was that humanity was losing touch with discipline and pain. And so there were actually aspects of Christianity historically that understood how the institution of religion could not be an opium, but could actually be a engine for rank and order and discipline and so on. And, and the truth is I get into this in our, my conversation with Pascal and Nietzsche. And I really see that Pascal and Nietzsche are very close to one another as religious thinkers. Nietzsche has some comments about the way that the um, version of Catholicism that Pascal followed Jansenism, which was, the version of Catholicism that believed in predestination, which was very hierarchical as well, uh, he said that the effect of that discipline and ranking gave Pascal a beautiful face. Mm. So Nietzsche has this notion that egalitarian Christianity is an engine of degeneration and sickness, spiritual sickness. And so, but you see, Marx offers a complete 180 of that, which is the idea that What's concealed in Christianity is the material universal, right? Is the fact that it's not adequate to think of universalism only at the level of spirit. But we also need to transubstantiate that into a social project. And so Marx kind of reads this as in line with the Enlightenment, but the radical Enlightenment, the Spinozistic Enlightenment that Marx is trying to in line with. And so they, the two could not be more different there. And I think that Nietzsche's critique of Christianity is this, is goes back to this idea. And I'm not, I'm not sure 
So part of the problem here, Xavier, is that in today's day and age, I make a claim in the latter parts of my book that, you know, and I'm not going to blame this on Nietzsche because we live in Nietzsche's world, but not this much. <laughs> I, I, I actually don't see modern liberal institutions as institutions that are necessarily in favor of radical equality. And in fact, I think that humanity has kind of lost touch with the desire and the meaning of, of equality. And, but that's not to say that it shouldn't be reintroduced. And that's not to say that reintroducing it would be medicinal, positive, and healing, as opposed to what Nietzsche... So you see, it's, it's at this point where I am com- confident to declare that Nietzsche becomes an enemy at this level for me, because there's a question about equality. And I think that, I think that it becomes a debate. You could say it like this, even from a physiological standpoint, which is where Nietzsche is very attentive to as a kind of psychologist. Is this, is a social order, which is introduced to more and more spread and in, introduction of forms of equality, a healthier social order. That's a whole open debate that Nietzsche would encourage us to have. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of contentious thing. Mm-hmm. And I would, I, so I would argue that Nietzsche's critique of Christianity in its egalitarian aspects, and I want to hear what you think, I'm not, I'm not convinced of it. I'm, I'm not convinced that it produces the kind of problems that he diagnoses. I'm more convinced of Marx's critique, which is that it leaves us in a kind of partial equality and it therefore leaves us kind of frustrated. Um, and it gives us uh, what, what one, one metaphor that Marx uses is it puts flowers on our chains. Um, but the, it doesn't take off the chains. Hmm. Hmm. It doesn't abolish the chains. Hmm. That's the problem with religion, hmm. right? It's a beautiful flowers on chains, but the chains stay. You, you, you see, so, uh, and Nietzsche didn't want to abolish the chains, okay? So, um, well, maybe you could say through will and through determination, force, so on and so on, some can abolish the chains. But I'm not sure that that's really what the tradition of rationalism and the Enlightenment that I believe in is really after at the end of the day. Mm. You know, I think we have a better form of human freedom than that available. Mm. Let me just clarify you're, you're saying the, the difference there is that with egalitarianism, you're saying that Christianity, at least how Nietzsche is seeing it, is that um, Christianity is trying to offer some type of egalitarianism. Is that, is that about right? Or the opposite? So he's saying two things. One is Christianity is becoming that way, mm-hmm. and it is leading to um, the degeneration of its former you see there were aspects of the christian church that were like for example nietzsche praises uh the bourgeois church in its imperial engagements in china during the opium wars there are aspects of the contemporary church that he praises but very few Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but but again my argument would be the primary reason this goes back to reading methods and why really Nietzsche is so connected to the legacy of the French Revolution 
is, is that it's the egalitarian aspects of Christianity that pose the problem. So I'm saying that, but I'm also saying that that argument hits a little differently today because most churches are not egalitarian. Most churches are like prosperity gospel. Most churches are very capitalistic today. There's some that have this compassion and charity for the poor and the meek shall inherit the earth and so on, but I feel like most Christian churches have lost touch with it. That's my feeling. Oh, boy. That's a picking up a lot of can of worms. Yeah, there. That, that's 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 touching all my pressure points. Uh, <laughs> I have nothing nice to say. I, my short version on this. Um, I'll try to be short on this. Um, so with Christianity, I don't think I don't think you can have I don't think you can have um, uh, a, a, a religion that is founded on uh, these Judaic kind of principles and then the Judeo-Christian principles, it's always been a hierarchy. Always. There's always a hierarchy. There's always a rank order. There's the sinner and there's the believer. There's the elect and there's the non-elect. There's the chosen. There's the, 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 the um, apostates. So, and everywhere in between. There's judgment, there's condemnation in the Old Testament and in the New Testament based on many different things, right? Your, your, your group, um, you, what, where, where you fall in, uh, your behaviors, et cetera, et cetera. There is always, always this, this absolute um, narcissism with, with, with religion, I think, in many religions, maybe not all, but definitely within uh, Abrahamic religions, where this dogma that there's always people better than others, or they have the right story, or they have the right position, or they have all these things. I don't think, I don't think, I don't even think, I don't think that even in the doctrines or the dogmas as at any point, because it's not you're equal as a human being, right? The only way you're equal is as sinners, right? So fair enough, right? I'll grant you that. But there's never this, or pushing for this egalitarianism. It's more the opposite, right? Unless you get, get with the program, you're, you're fucked. And that's how it is. And there's no way that you have to do it this specific way, right? So you can look at this in a lot of different contexts. So I think that in many ways, and, and then look, you can, you can onboard this onto Catholicism, and that's I mean, doctrinally, it's an absolute fucking shit show. But then there's this other piece of it where everything, most of the, of the core tenets of Catholicism is the most anti-human thing you can think of, right? It is always how you're guilty of something. You're always doing something wrong. You need to have penance. You're living your life where it's the opposite of opening or creating or doing anything of the nature. So for me, I don't see Christianity specifically, but really any religion as espousing any kind of egalitarianism whatsoever, right? I think, and I think a lot of these criticisms Nietzsche would agree with, and I think he makes, you know, very harsh criticisms uh, as well, which are totally accurate. I do think that there is a, mm, within the spread of Christianity, there's been a lot of debate about this recently, within Western civilization, right? Some people like to co-opt this and say that, you know, Christianity built the West and all this bullshit, right? Which is 
there's an impact, there's an influence for sure. You can have Constantine, you can have Justinian, you can have all of these folks in the Roman Empire. Sure. And then you get to the, to the different popes. Sure. You know, post and, and uh, pre and post schism. But my thing would be, even with all of those things, right? You, th- those things became structurally implanted. They became politicized. They became very hierarchical within the Catholic church. And then even within the current church. So yeah, I, I, I've never really thought the whole we're going to, you know, everybody's equal and everybody. I don't, I don't think that that's ever been true. I don't think that that's ever been the case. And as far as the church today, I mean, liberal Christians are, you know, absolutely can't tell their ass from their elbow in terms of how they know what doctrines are. Right. I mean, there, there's these things where there's just a, there's a complete cherry picking. There's a complete avoidance of basically fucking three fourths of the Bible, so on and so forth. Uh, and they just pick the parts that they like because, again, it's just it's it's a structure. It's something that is a book. It's a rules. It's a it's a way of doing things. It makes you feel good, and it keeps you happy and whatever. And there is this for uh, 25, 30 years now. We've had this prosperity gospel with these mega churches. You can get rich and use this. And there's all the political co-opting there. So yeah, all that to say, um, I don't think Christianity has ever been egalitarian. Yeah. Okay. So- My rant is over. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that, that's well taken. And I mean, I have all respect and solidarity for individuals raised in religious households where there exists um, repression and sometimes abuse. I'm not saying that you experienced that, but I mean, I know many people that have. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did it. I did it. I mean, it was, it was nice. It was nice. No, I'm sure you did. Yeah. Ignorant bliss what I was doing. <laughs> No, that, that, that's how it is. Yeah, I know, I know, I know the, the darker sides of those communities, and it's not pretty. I don't think that the Christianity that Nietzsche encountered is the same as the Christianity that we encounter in the post-World War II consumer capitalist era. I think it's fundamentally different. I think that this idea of um, the unity of Nietzsche's concepts, right, around how... Uh, the general critique of herd mentality, the general critique of slave morality, the, the, the love that he has for Christ as separate from the community that he built yep. is an interesting way for us to think about the way that Nietzsche himself has the same relationship to his own community. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's actually why when I debate left Nietzscheans, they're always like, yeah, you can say there's something called Nietzscheanism, but Nietzsche would despise Nietzscheanism. <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, that's true, but that doesn't take away from the fact that there still is that thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so who knows what Christ would say about megachurch Christianity? I mean, you know, could he, could he love it? I doubt it. I mean, who knows, right? Um, anyways, but, but the point I think there about, like, even to return to Nietzsche's famous notion of the death of God, right? Of this notion of pity Mm -hmm. of mob pity Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the idea that God died as an interiorization of the pity of the mob of this idea of Nietzsche's critique of, of mob mentality as, as bound up with his critique of Christianity because of its implicit, uh, spiritual universalism. That was a problem for him. And furthermore, uh, like it or not, uh, the dissolution of 
big systems of oppression, such as slavery, well, they were driven by by Christianity, yeah. not fully, yeah. Yeah. but in many yeah, ways. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that is what I mean by the egalitarian impulse in Christianity, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> That's real, okay? That, but that is something separate from the neurosis that is developed as part of repressive, uh, you know, modern evangelical yeah, experiences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are two different mm-hmm. things. Yeah. And I would even argue that modern evangelicalism doesn't know equality or God. They don't even know what that means. It doesn't exist no. for them. No. It's not, it's not a part of the picture. No. Uh, but but it is a part of Christianity in a theological form, and I think that Nietzsche found that problematic. And so you have to take seriously what he means by that, and you have to ask yourself, is he right? Mm-hmm. Is he right to be skeptical of equality? That's why I think that we want to that we need to have this pugilistic relationship to him. Mm-hmm. Because if we if we just accept it and his word, I don't know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I don't know if we want Nietzsche to be right. Oh, I mean, yes. Yeah. I mean, on the the I will say this, uh, and 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 uh, and you can you can land us home here with this one. Um, but the, the 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 most difficult thing for me in reading Nietzsche, out of everything I've read, I can get fully on board with his ideas on morals. I can get fully on board with his politics for the most part. I can get on board with with many things. Right? There's so many good things. The equality thing is the one that always is hard. It's a hard one for me. It's really hard. Uh, I don't have it figured all out. Uh, and, and it's something I keep wrestling with when I, when I read him. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it, it, it's some, the, 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 some of the, the worst of it is, yeah, maybe he's right, but I don't, I don't. I don't care if he's right. I want to do it the way that I want. <laughs> right. So it's, I, that's the, that's, that's at the, at the most one extent of it. And then the other thing is like, no, he's completely wrong. And, and you know, I just need to figure out how right. to answer it better. So, you know, I, there's those things. So I guess the, the, the last question I'll ask, right. Cause it, I know I've, I've, uh, we've, we've been going for a bit is you've mentioned at different points in the conversation, but how do we read, uh, Nietzsche as a parasite <laughs> and how do we, um, you know, how should the left take him seriously. I know you say that we kind of uh, uh, crystallized him in society, Nietzscheism and kind of thing, but how does the left kind of take him seriously and his ideas seriously and not just kind of dismiss him in, in this reading of, of, of him as a parasite? Yeah, I mean, great question. I mean, there is a debate on the left right now about these readings that I'm working with, from Lucerto to Lukács to Jeff Waite to uh, a number of other Marx historian thinkers that I work with. And sometimes they have a position which is quite dismissive and which really says, look, he's an enemy. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to learn. The idea of appropriating his concepts is, is not really on the table. If it was, it would be kind of like, uh, you know, would you, would you appropriate somebody that breaks into your house and steals all of your things? Mm-hmm. Because he's, he's like this kind of, monstrous figure in some sense. Now, now, uh, you know, the first chapter of the book, as you know, is a biographical mm-hmm. one, which is, well, this is written by somebody who is been touched by this writer. And then I went through a transformation where I read, where I became a leftist, became committed to socialism. And then I read a different perspective. And then I have what I call a parasitical experience, which is actually, I went back into Nietzsche almost as a quasi-spiritual reading, right? I think he does invite that. And, um, but with his new tools, with his new awareness, 
with these new connections that we've talked about tonight, which is how to understand how these concepts work, understand how they're connected. And that has just been like uh, something that allows me to more rigorously appreciate where he's wrong, where he has a point, and how to use him without being duped by him. Because mm. I did relate to Nietzsche as a master figure for a long time. And I do make an argument at the end of the book where I say, look, you know, Zarathustra, how does Zarathustra end? It ends in a kind of weird way, which is all of the higher men are tested with the call of the lion's roar and they flee and Zarathustra remains. So they kind of chicken out, right? And therefore, none of them uh, ascends. None of them can overwhelm Zarathustra as such. Mm. I mean, the, the idea of this kind of ingenious because it sort of means like, you know, any reader should always be trying to overcome him. And it's this, it's this dramatic persona of this, this tension, um, like any, any mentor would have with you, right? So you think it's very athletic in some sense. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's also a lot of danger in reading that, that I call sadomasochistic, mm -hmm. where it, it does reinforce a certain hierarchy. So you have to be cautious of that. So when you read him as a parasite, you also bring your experiences to bear. If Nietzsche has all of these things to say about poor and working class people, and let's say you are a poor and working class person, that means something now different. Let's say you didn't know that, and you were reading him, and you're like, yeah, latida, latida, away. So you bring your personal, that's another part of it. So there's a lot of things that you can bring. You can bring, it's basically a expansion of uh, what Lucero calls the, Nietzsche's theoretical surplus. Mm. Benefiting from his theoretical surplus mm. is what I'm interested in. Mm. And not, not, you know, saying, oh, Nietzsche's just this kind of, you know, he's a fad for teenagers or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I would be the last person to say that. I think he's, you know, a world historical thinker that needs to be wrestled with. And what my book is trying to do is just give us a slightly new way to do that. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think, I think all of that is, is super important. And, and the, the, one of the things that I, I, I really uh, encourage uh, listeners to do is to, you know, to get your book and to kind of really, is, I mean, I'm sure it's intentional. The, the first chapter is really helpful in setting the tone. I think it's just that. I mean, and you said earlier that the book is written for the left. And I think that people need to, we can't be afraid of ideas, even ones that are dangerous or make us uncomfortable and say, look, what do we, what, how do we wrestle with this? You know, how do we, how do we engage with this? What do we extract from it? And, you know, with the rest of it, you know, you can do what you need to do with it. But I think that there's, um, for somebody that's a serious thinker, right? He, 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 this isn't, you know, this isn't, you know, somebody that's not a, that's an unserious thinker. He's a very serious thinker. Yeah. That, that, that's important. And so I think that, um, whether people, look, yeah, if you're on the right, if you're on the right and you think that most people on the left are crazy or mm -hmm. out there, I mean, and let's say you're a Nietzsche lover. Mm -hmm. Well, you could, you could still read my book because one thing we have in common is that I know what it means to be a Nietzsche. Like, <laughs> right, 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 if you, right. If you, if you can't agree with my politics, you can meet me there. Yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then see what, and see what you think. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, you will see a different side to him than you've probably ever been exposed to. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good, too, though, right? Because that, that's, again, you're, you're, yeah. you're, you know, it's just kind of this, 
triangle of dialogue, right? And it's like, yeah, this is it's really good to kind of have uh, these different perspectives. Again, you can agree, you can disagree. That's the whole point of of, of good dialogue, and uh, whether you're reading it or, or engaging. So, the uh, the book is called "How to Read Like a Parasite: How the Left Got High on Nietzsche." Um, this is this is a, a fantastic book. Uh, Daniel, what can I say? This was this was everything I wanted it to be. I, I know we had we had this on the books for a while, and uh, I'm always uh, ready to talk about Nietzsche. And so, you know, a good two hours of talking about him is is uh, is so fulfilling, rewarding. So it's just a uh, big, big, big thanks for for coming on and and uh, giving us your wisdom. My absolute pleasure. Yeah, let's do it again, my friend. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs>